Full Potential Ted, welcoming you to the Full Potential Addiction Podcast, where I chat with inspiring people in the recovery world. And if you're thinking of getting help for your addiction, now is the time. Definitely go to fullpotentialnow.org and get a list of the nearest treatment centers and therapists near you. And remember, it is never too late to make a new start. And of course, be sure Recovery Nation to go to fullpotentialnow.org to get your free recovery toolkit. This bad boy contains the tools to take on your addiction and definitely enhance your recovery. Hey, 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 Recovery Nation. It's Full Potential Ted in the house, live and in stereo. And actually, I'm not even in the house. I'm in Matt Felgus's house slash office. Super awesome. We got a super awesome guest with us today, a real live psychiatrist. We're going to talk about all sorts of things today. Um, and I'm excited to have him on this podcast. So we're going to ask him, you know, our typical question, Recovery Nation, are you ready to rock Recovery Nation, Matt? I am ready to rock don't call me a psychiatrist again. All right. I love it. I love it. So why don't we start out with the first question, which is just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. And maybe even how you got into sure. addiction medicine. I get to do what I love and what I've been called to do by my higher power every single day. And what that is, is helping people who are in recovery walk on their healing path. That is what I do in a nutshell. I love the field. I can't believe I am old enough to have been in the field. It's been over 25 years now, but that's how long it's been. I started out as a drug counselor, so I'm not that old. I was in college. I was certified as a drug counselor. Uh, there's a whole backstory to that that we probably don't have time for, but then you'll have to have me back on your podcast again if anybody nice, wants nice. to hear this. I was a drug counselor. I had all these ideas as a drug counselor. I loved the field even back then. This was the late 80s, and I had all these great ideas for the addiction field, and nobody would listen to me because I was only a bachelor's level drug counselor. So I decided I'm going to go to medical school. And then everybody's going to listen to my ideas. And that, that is kind of how it worked, actually. So that is the reason that I got the MD. It has been helpful as far as getting people to listen to me. So I mean, that, that's why you're listening to me right now, yeah. in part. So I started in addiction. I went into psychiatry because I felt like Understanding the mental health was really how I was going to help people with addiction issues heal. And that's the only reason I give talks. I say as part of my talks, I don't like doctors and I really don't like psychiatrists. (laughs) And then everybody stops and they look at me and I said, yes, I am a doctor and I am a psychiatrist. This is why I'm having Matt on the show, Matt. He is so real life. Um, and he's one of the, like, how many years did you spend just, um, working with people before you became a psychiatrist in the addiction field? 
Well, in the addiction, just in the addiction field, I did a couple of different things. I worked, and I love this, I worked at a place called On Drugs Incorporated. That's where I got certified. On Drugs Incorporated. I love that name. In State College, Pennsylvania. This was in the late 80s, so I was certified as a drug counselor. I did that for a little under three years, left there when I left that area. Went to Philadelphia. I am an urban eastern native. I worked at a methadone clinic uh, while I was writing a novel. This was right after I graduated college. And that was when I started getting frustrated at how nobody would listen to all of my great ideas. So following that experience, that was actually a little less than a year, I wound up going to medical school, and that was in the early 90s. Wow, so we're talking like Recovery Nation. Just listen to this once. I mean, this guy's been part of the addiction field since 1980, kind of has seen it and done it, seen the best, seen the worst, and like we're talking like a span of probably, what, 30, how many years? Man? There's a 80? difference between 1980 and the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> I was still a kid in 1980, yeah, man. I'm not that old. But <laughs> he looks totally young, and we're going to post his picture on the podcast for sure. Um, so I guess sometimes, you know, our listeners just want to know, like, just a few basic things before we kind of jump into all that you know about, especially opiate addiction, because this is really your kind of expertise area. But what's like Matt, the guy? Like, do you have hobbies? Do you, what's your favorite food? You know, just kind of give us like a short little thing, a day in the life of oh, Matt. man. Funny you should talk about my favorite food because I had an epiphany in New Orleans. I didn't eat very healthy this weekend at all. Um, I need to start focusing a little more, being a little healthier, exercising. So it doesn't matter if you're a doc, if you're doing what you love to do. Um, I got my own private practice and I am still trying not to drink so many Diet Cokes. Yeah. You'll try, so trying to make changes with his own behavior. Um, it's not directly addiction, but it's, we all try to make these changes with things that we, you know, I eat unhealthy things. I'm trying to get on the straight and narrow. My wife is really into healthy food. So all I'd have to do at a restaurant is order what she orders. But do I do that every time, Matt? Uh, no. You <laughs> I'm got, like, no, the burger, be... the cheeseburger, the fries, oh, I'll get healthy tomorrow. So, um, what do you do for hobbies? What do I do for hobbies? Yeah. I love one of my favorite things to do. I love to write. I, I do poetry, do a lot of journal writing, worked. Uh, I've got my novel on the back burner. I'm actually working on an addiction book. Okay. Tell us. Yeah. Just a, maybe we don't want you to let the cat totally out of the bag, so to speak, but maybe tell us a little bit about what that book is going to shape up to be? Well, there's actually two books, and I've got a publisher interested in my second book, which okay. was the Overflow book. Uh, the first book is one of the ideas I developed as a drug counselor, where I developed 
a continuum of substance use. I make it very simple. I actually talked about it when I was in med school to middle school and high school students in Philadelphia. That was one of the things I did was went out to uh, schools in Philadelphia and talked about just my, you know, talked about my continuum. What it does is anybody that drinks, uses any type of substance, uh, alcohol is a substance, but we always seem to uh, separate it out. But anybody who drinks or uses is going to fall somewhere on the continuum. So there's five zones, A, B, C, D, and E. Real brief, A is use that doesn't fall into a pattern. Everybody starts here. B is pattern use. That would be a couple of beers at the end of the work week, uh, smoking some weed every time you get together with a certain friend or a certain group of friends. So this is use that does not cause any problems in your life, but it is a pattern, and that is zone B. And most people that we think of as recreational users or social drinkers we're creatures of habit. Most people do fall into zone B, but that, that's, it's important to keep that in mind because it is important to break our patterns once in a while because if they get entrenched, then we move along the continuum. Zone C is negative consequence use. So somebody's use has either caused them to do something they were sorry that they did, got into a fight with a significant other, or got into a bar fight, or missed of an important meeting at work or that 8 a.m. class that you were planning to make it to if you were a student. So that's, you know, it causes something that you're sorry that it did. Um, having an unwanted sexual experience, that would be another example. Like you get like, you go to a party, you have too much to drink and you sleep with somebody that you maybe didn't really necessarily want to sleep Negative with. consequence use. Exactly. Okay. That's and then, a perfect example. So what would be, would it also, would a negative consequence also cause, would this qualify as a negative consequence where like I like to drink a lot on Saturday and then I start missing like my kids soccer on Sunday because totally. right? yep. I'm sleeping in. So, so I'm not having any legal problems with it, but it's still impacting my life in a negative way. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's two parts of this. Number one is doing something that you're sorry that you did. The other piece of negative consequences is not doing something. That you were intending to do so you gave you gave a perfect example another example would be somebody that gets behind the wheel they know they should not be driving whether or not you get caught is the luck of the draw if you get behind the wheel when you know that you are impaired and you should not be driving that is a negative consequence whether or not you get caught you get busted slapped with a DUI. So that's that zone C. Can I say something about this sure. OWI thing? Sure. Because I spent a lot of time doing OWI group with just, you know, probably eight years, like an OWI group per week. So it's 10 people in a group times eight years. And I got curious about the crowd because we started getting – yeah, I met my first person who had three OWIs, and I met my first person who had four, and then I met my first person with five, and then I met my first person with six. And I have to admit, you know, even though I'm a therapist, I'm trained, blah, 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 I, you know, I really, in the back of my mind, I'm like, how do you get that many OWIs and not realize that probably you should walk away from alcohol? I mean, it's giving you a lot of problems. But then I stumbled into conversations with these people, and they started talking about how often they actually drove intoxicated. And so I began to do like little samples each group. 
for each like 12 weeks we did, I'd have one group where we had the group calculate how many OWIs they have and how many times they've actually um, driven intoxicated. And then I actually compared it to the national averages. And it turns out the national average is like in the 90% of the time, if not like high 90s, that they don't get busted. Yes. So like if, like in what I started, and we started adding up the total number of times people drove intoxicated in the group, it was astronomical. And then when you compare all the OWIs in the group, you're like, that's like 2% of the time. And here they've been driving. It's, it's like engaging that behavior frequently, frequently. It's almost like the laws of percentages will eventually probably win out that you'll get caught. Yes. So, but a lot of people may not count that as like a negative because they didn't get busted. So maybe that is a negative. So that's, it's not, sometimes it's not about the legal ramifications that follow you. It's just knowing I really shouldn't be doing this. I'm not safe. And I would say that everybody deep down, whether or not you continue to do something, I really believe we all kind of, we, we all have a, a, a higher source space, a higher self, I guess is what I really want to say. We all have a higher self that kind of knows better. And the reality is it is a negative consequence. If you're getting behind the wheel, you're putting your life in jeopardy, people that may be in the car with you in jeopardy, other people on the road. Nobody intends to hurt somebody when they're driving under the influence, but it happens too often. So that's Zone C. That is Zone C. Moving along. I'm anxious, man. I want to hear about the Zone D and E. Okay, so what happens? Zone C is not a stable zone because when I'm just going to – I'm interrupting Matt totally because I'm turning the lights on. All right. It was getting too dark in here, Matt. Oh, sorry. (laughs) You know, I I, I was hoping to create a mood. I don't know. (laughs) So what happens when you have a negative consequence, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to either go, whoa, I'm not going to let that happen again, and you're going to pull it back. So then what happens, it is possible up to a certain point, and zone C, it is possible to pull it back to zone A or B. So one option when you have a negative consequence is to pull it back and go, whoa, I'm not going to let that happen again. The other Option is kind of, you know, sounds like some of the folks that you've had in group that you're talking about, Ted, where they just go, yeah, whatever, and they continue to do, you know, do those negative actions, well, do those actions that are causing negative consequences. So zone D is a pattern of negative consequences. Within zone D are the people that are becoming psychologically dependent on the substance that they're using. Because why else would any rational person continue to have negative consequences if they're not becoming psychologically dependent on the substance that they're using? So that is zone D. Within zone D, There is a small percentage, maybe about 20% of folks that can move back into earlier zones. But within zone D is what we talk about in the field as the point of no return, which means your drinking or your use has gotten to the point where it is out of your control. You are powerless and you can't just go backwards and be a recreational user at that point or a social drinker. And we see those folks in the field try as hard as they might. They are not able to get control of their, you know, the substance of choice. So these folks are in zone D 
mentally dependent on their substance, and then we've just got one more zone to go, that zone E, and those are the folks that are physically dependent and mentally dependent and psychologically dependent on their substance. Now, some people have said to me that somebody in zone D actually can have a worse psychological addiction than somebody in zone E, and somebody in zone D could actually be consuming more of their substance. If you just think about somebody that drinks a six-pack a six pack a day. That's somebody that's drinking 42 beers a week. Um, let's just say it's beer. Right? We'll just jump in. Miller Lite. It's easier to think of. No, it's got to be something better than that. Maybe uh, maybe MGD. Yeah, not, not Miller Lite. That's, that's water. What about Spotted Cow? I like Spotted, spotted Cow. Yeah. So that's, you know, so that, all right, we'll say Spotted Cow. But a six pack a week, they're consuming 42 drinks. Somebody else could drink a case for, and I don't know why Thursday night is considered a weekend in Wisconsin, but it is. I'll tell so, you, I'll tell you something, Matt. I teach over at UW-Whitewater and Thursday night is the party night. It is at totally. The <laughs> where I went to school, I, I went to Penn State and where I came from actually Wednesday night. Was the Wednesday night. was the because it was the middle. You needed to celebrate getting halfway through the week, so all the everybody had the Wednesday night specials. Thursday was just another day. Some of this may be the UW system. They don't believe in classes on Fridays. Where I come from, we actually had classes on Friday. So I don't know if that had something that might have had something to do with it. But somebody, what I was saying is that. A case, a case, a weekend. So Thursday night, a case of beer. Friday night, a case of beer. Saturday night, a case of beer. How many? How many is that? That's three. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three cases of beer. That would be seventy-two beers. Is it that much, really? Yeah, seventy-two. Twenty-four a case. Twenty-four, twenty-four, twenty-four. Okay, there are people that are doing that. But the point that I'm making, and this is probably obvious, you know, even if you're drinking three quarters of a case, you can drink more in those three days. Now you just kind of sleep it off on Sunday, and then you're ready to go to class or work Monday through Thursday night. So you're not in physical withdrawal. You, you know, bounce back. By Thursday night. Can I ask you just a quick question? I, sure. I'll totally try to remember where we're at, but you mentioned physical withdrawal. So for our listeners out there, um, could you just kind of like maybe lay out a little bit of what, how you could tell that you had physical withdrawal from alcohol? If you are the most obvious early symptom is the shakiness. Yeah. So if you get up the next morning and you haven't drank yet, a lot of times people will talk about, you know, they need an eye opener. Not everybody needs an eye opener that's physically dependent on alcohol. Some people do, but not everybody. So if you just feel shaky, sweaty, like you are just having a really bad urge to drink, that the old the old adage the hair of the dog that bit you yeah if somebody is needing that that is a sign of physical oh, dependence yes that you're physically dependent and your body basically needs it somebody who's physically dependent is walking around with a bit of a blood alcohol level all the time even if they're able to work their full time job go to school nobody may know it. But if you need, if you have some alcohol in your system pretty much all the time or you can't wait until after work, that is the first thing you need to do. You feel like you need to put it back in your body. 
that's that, that that's that's being physical dependent. Yeah, and, and I always thought like the simplest thing I always thought of was would be if you have the shakes the next morning and then you drink and those shakes go away. Yep, that's a it's good way to look at it. Simple. I mean, yep. it's maybe Not too simplistic. Everybody, well. I would say that anyone that falls into that category does have a physical dependence, right. but not everybody that's physical to physically dependent falls into that category. Ah, does that make sense? Yes, it so does. So that's it's kind of one of those Venn diagram things, you know. Where so we're so I know I totally interrupted you on that one, but um, you were headed down this path of like we were talking about like you know somebody who drinks three days in a row has seventy two beers. What if they don't have the withdrawal? Then they're in zone D. They can still be mentally dependent on alcohol. They couldn't get through their weekend without it. Or when I did the talk uh, for the high school and the college kids uh, back in my early days of doing this work, I would say the people in zone D are the ones that leave the party as soon as the beer runs out because what's the point of being at the party when the beer runs out? Mm -hmm. So these are folks that can't just be have a good time without alcohol or their drug of choice. And I do want to add that everything I'm saying, even though we're talking more about alcohol right now, if you substitute marijuana, pain pills, heroin, cocaine, it's the, the principles are very much. The so same. you can translate the principles you just laid out so beautifully and so clear, but those same principles would probably apply to these other substances yep. as well. Just substitute your drug of choice. And people can be in different zones with different drugs. So there may be somebody that says somebody that's got a problem with pain pills or heroin. You know, they are physically dependent. They are going into withdrawal when they're not, but they'll say, well, I never liked alcohol or I never liked marijuana. Yeah. I'll just drink one and that's it. And I never get the urge to drink more or I have a couple of hits and that's it. I'm done with the marijuana. I don't even like it that much. So you can be in more than one zone with more than one substance, but it, it is important, I would say, to know where you are. Excellent, excellent. So those of you listening, um, our listeners out there, man, this is good stuff to take in. And I know some people will not know where they fall. They're, you know, obviously if you're drinking every day or using every day, kind of the writing's on the wall. It's a little clearer to see. But I think there's a lot of people out there, and this is what I'm kind of discovering, just in terms of people that contact me, that they're kind of like unsure. Yep. I, and, I, and that would be like zone, what is that, zone C? Well, I hear that a lot. One of the things that I discovered, and again, this was back in my drug counselor days, one of the things that I discovered is when I describe the zones, when I describe the continuum, it's just a description. I'm not judging, so people are not as defensive. But when I describe the zones, I've found that people are very accurately able to put themselves in their right zone. When I talk about the pattern, I think most people can recognize, yeah, I, I, I do this every Friday night or every time I get together with a particular friend or group of friends, even if that doesn't happen on a regular basis, or I'll use every time I have an argument with my significant other or my parent or just my best friends where they'll 
go out and use or drink, they can recognize, in my, my, in my experience, most people do recognize that they fall into a pattern. Then the next step would be, are you having negative consequences? And sometimes it's useful to ask people around you that you're close with. Denial is a whole lot of things. We talk about denial a lot in addiction. But the bottom line is, until the person themselves is ready to look and to make changes, it's, it's not going to happen. But sometimes, if you're open, if you are wondering, hmm, do you think I have negative consequences or not, sometimes it is useful to ask somebody close to close you. To, which I actually love, because this is like a tangible strategy that our listeners might take home you know, back actually back to their houses and, and, and maybe think about themselves and then maybe ask that certain somebody who you have a lot of trust with, who you have a re- like a, a good relationship, a good trusting relationship, you value their opinion. It's not like completely dysfunctional as hell and they're going to like totally like shame you and kill you and bring you down based on what you said. But this is like a somebody that you have some trust with and to ask them, you know, to be able to give their opinion of what they think about your use. Somebody who's going to be honest with you. Honest with you. Excellent. Excellent. So it's not hard to put yourself at the, you know, in the continuum. I would say where it gets challenging is let's say somebody's in zone D, which a lot of people are. So that's the pattern of negative consequences being psych, you know, starting to become psychologically dependent on the substance. Or if you've been there for a while, you probably are psychologically dependent. Now, as I said before, about maybe 20% of the people in Zone D, you know what I'll do? I can give you a drawing. You can put that up on your website. Oh, that'd be awesome. awesome. Or I can send you to my website, MatthewFelgusMD.com. I have a picture of my continuum on there uh, under, I believe it's under the alcohol heading. There's different headings on different drugs talks about my treatment philosophy but i do there is a picture of my continuum but i can i can send it to you yeah so say say that website again matthew felgus md all no spaces all one word basically dot com and we'll have a link for uh when we release this podcast we'll have a link for that site so you'll be able to um, access that information spell my name yes yes so there's a picture of it you can kind of understand it that way so what if i was um, somebody that was in like C, um, what would be your, any other words of wisdom? I'm trying to kind of figure out. Cause I have recommendations for every zone. Um, actually I'm going to answer that. The thing, the point that I was making before that I forgot to mention was one of the most challenging things when somebody identifies themselves on the continuum. If somebody's in zone D, it's amazing that 95% of people that are in zone D think they're in the 20% that they can go back to, you know, lesser level drinking or use see i totally that totally fits for me because in my in my travels as an addiction counselor and working with all these people who struggle with these issues is i always had this and you can totally disagree with me let me know what your thoughts are on this but i always the people i met that were developing an addiction it's almost like you have to have denial in order to keep addiction going there's certain 
there's certain tenets that you actually need. You need a good deal of denial. You need a good deal of rationalization. You need a good deal of like surround yourself with a bunch of other people who are addicted that will support your view. And I don't know if you've kind of discovered the same thing, but I always sort of resonates with me as what you're talking about. And I'm like, oh, I remember that. I absolutely see that. I have a little bit different of a take on it because, and I think guess I'm an optimist at my core and that has, I hope never does change. But the reality is a lot of that is more about lack of education. Mm. My philosophy, this was another one of those ideas I was pushing as a drug counselor that nobody would listen to, which is why I'm an MD right now. But if somebody is educated, if they understand what the progression is, they'll be able to stop themselves at an earlier zone that they are able to get a handle on. So if somebody's in zone C, they have a negative consequence. And I've had patients do this. I have, I have teenage patients, young adult patients that I've educated. Uh, years ago, I had a, a patient of mine was a, um, she was a, I guess she was about 15, 16 at the time. This was probably about eight years ago. So she, she's an adult now, 15 or 16 year old. I was treating both of her parents. Both of her parents had opiate dependence. So she was very high risk herself at the time. She had not experimented with opiates yet, but she was experimenting with alcohol and with marijuana. And I talked to her about the continuum. So she understood it. And I remember one day she came into my office for her appointment and she said, Dr. Felgus, that's it. I am never drinking again. I had a negative consequence. I was at a party. I really liked the guy whose house the party was at, and I wasn't, I didn't stop my drinking, and I wound up throwing up all over his living room rug. And I was so embarrassed. I forget what word yeah. she used. She didn't, but I was just, I've never been so embarrassed in my life, and I get it, and that's a negative consequence, and I am not going to have a negative consequence again with alcohol. Now, the other part of what she said was, I've never had a negative consequence with pot, so I'm okay to still smoke pot, but I'm not going to drink anymore. Yeah. So, and again, I, I, I would have, like... she was very high risk and it, she, she actually wound up, she did wind up fast forward. She did wind up experimenting with opiates, getting addicted, getting in treatment. And she's been several years in recovery right now. So she, she's, she's doing great, but Basically, the point that I'm making with that is even somebody, even a teenager who is not educated in the addiction field was able to understand, well, I had a negative consequence. I got to pull this back. I don't want to have a pattern of negative consequences. So to answer your early question, what does somebody who's in zone C do? Pull it back. I say the same thing to people that have, that are discovering that they have patterns of use. We're creatures of habit. Our brain, we fall into patterns with our behaviors. Uh, just if anybody thinks about their morning routine, you know, you brush your teeth a certain way, you do things in a certain order, you take your shower, then you brush your teeth, or the other way around. And it actually throws us off when we try to do things in a different order. Now, there's good research that shows that we're actually, we're making more brain synapses but the reality is it is hard for us to break our patterns or put our left shoe on before our right shoe if we're used to doing it the yeah. other way. So there's a lot of patterns. So what I tell people, they catch themselves in patterns. They're not having negative consequences. Break the pattern just one time. 
So to keep an eye, so every eight times that you're in the pattern, break it once or twice. So in other words, put something conscious into the equation. If you are drinking or smoking weed every time you get together with a certain friend, you say to that friend, you know what, tonight, I don't want to do that. Let's do something else. Let's go to a movie and not get high. Let's just hang out. Let's play basketball. Let's go take a walk. Break the pattern one time. That doesn't mean that you're never going to use with that person again, but that keeps you from going totally unconscious. And it is, it is an effective strategy. You don't want to move forward on the continuum. Well, what a great um, tool and strategy for Recovery Nation, just for our listeners out there. And and I'm, that's why I'm glad I had you on the show because you are so like down to earth and like this strategy is like not really talked about, like connecting it with habit, use connect with habit. Maybe you're in zone C. Um, maybe I'm not ready to go totally clean, but what could I do? Well, break the pattern once every eight times and see where that takes you. I think people are way more amenable to trying that versus um, give up pot and alcohol for the rest of your life. Right. I mean, and once people, when you cross the point of no return, which is in D, a lot of people have to find that out the hard way. You probably can't use the substance that you did get that far with. But before you get to that point, and I think that's been one of the problems in the treatment field, is that we've lumped everybody together. There are people whose use has not crossed the point of no return. So it does become an issue of if you're telling everybody that they just have to stop, that's it, you can never use again, you're going to get some, you're, you're going to lose people. Yeah, because people are like, that's BS. They might not tell you that, but they'll just go underground and then they'll get exactly. done treatment and go right back to exactly. it. Exactly. So I, I gave you the strategy for zone B to break the pattern once in a while. The strategy for zone C is you're going to have to do a little bit of work because you are going to need to keep yourself from having negative consequences. If you can't keep yourself from having negative consequences, then you probably have more of a problem than you think you do. But if you are able to keep yourself from negative consequences, that means if you know you're going to drink, you make sure somebody else is driving that night. Or if you have something that you're needing to do the next morning, you gave the example of your kid's soccer game, you cut yourself off early enough that you're going to be able to get home, get enough sleep, and not be too hungover the next day. If you know you get hangovers, then you, you limit how much you're drinking that night to the point where you're not going to get a hangover because it is important to be going to your kid's soccer game. And I absolutely love this stuff. I'll be honest with you. We did not talk about that as treatment providers, the places I worked. It was pretty much kind of like assess people that they met a certain level of care um, let's get them in. Let's promote, obviously, sobriety. But I think we did kind of take that lump everybody together. So for our listeners out there, I guess I want to transition to get your perspective on this, Matt, is there's people that might be looking at going into treatment. There's people that have already been, done several treatment rounds, might even done residential treatment, inpatient, all that good stuff. What's your perspective? I mean, you've been out here for like in the field for a long time. What's your perspective on somebody who might be, maybe they're, I'll give you a scenario. Um, 
they have some back problems. Their doctor back in, let's say it's 2002 when every doc was prescribing, you know, opiates yes, all over the were. place yes, they were. and got like half the nation hooked, it seemed like. But um, I could prescribe some um, Vicodin. I get hooked. I start using it. Um, my doc figures it out eventually. They cut me off. I get to go buy it on the street. Um because of all our tight-knit network now with the Walgreens and pharmacies being connected, there's less on the streets. So the price of the Vicodin tablet goes up. I can't afford that. I can't afford to dish out five grand a month for pills. I never thought of myself as an IV heroin user, but, hey, 20 bucks a hit, I'll do that. And now I'm hooked on heroin. I never planned my life out to be that way. Um. I thought about it a little bit lately, like things are getting bad for me. Maybe I should do something about this. Some people have encouraged me to go to treatment, but I'm not ready. What would you say to that? If we have a listener out there, what would you say to that person? With all your wisdom. I know it's a totally yeah, loaded that's, question. Well, that, that's a tough question because the bottom line is we can't make, make anybody. Yeah. I mean, the legal system can, but that's a different issue. We can't make anybody want to do treatment. Now, one of the things that you can do in that scenario, and actually I, I see a lot of people in that scenario. I see a lot of people that come in. You can always have a one-time assessment, whether it's with somebody like me or with a drug counselor or one of the agencies in town. And unfortunately it does make your, your insurance. Right. Your insurance dictates where you can go. Um, the reality is most of these, some of these assessments are not as, ex as expensive as you think they are. Okay. So you can put your toe in the water without committing to treatment. It's kind of like going to buy a car. You can shop around. You can go to dealerships. You can talk to somebody about a car. That doesn't mean that you're driving off the lot today. And you can do the same thing as far as learning about treatment. The other thing that we don't talk about a lot in the field is not all treatment providers are equal. Different places have different philosophies. And you really need to find somebody or a, an agency or a clinic that's going to be a match for where you're at right now. If you're just putting your toe in the water and you are not sure, you don't want to go to a place or if you try to go to a place and they're, you know, that's it, you need to never use again, where they, they try to rush you along a lot faster than you're ready, that's not going to be a good match for you. You I need somebody that is going to work with you Taking control of your life. It's sort of like going to see the doctor these days, like actually asking the right questions, like not assuming like the doctor knows everything, doing some research, asking like a potential addiction clinic, like what is your treatment philosophy? And if they can answer that question, that might tell you something in itself. Yes. Yeah, some treaters, and this is a little bit radical, but for somebody who's not sure if they're ready for treatment, asking the question, are you willing to see me if I'm not 100% sure I'm ready to stop using right now? Great question. That's a value bomb right there, man. Recovery Nation, write that down if you're in that boat because that is a phenom question. Phenomenal. All right. Well, we are smoking with all this info. You're like a 
You're like an encyclopedia, Matt. This is like awesome. I don't know how you're going to get this down to an hour. We're going to, it's just like an all day podcast. We'll start taking calls later. Um, what I wanted you to also talk about for sure is, you know, we're in the midst of an opiate epidemic. Yes, we've been. This they have been, new. yes. This is not new, but yes. Although it's more sensationalized now in the news because of all these people, you know, that rapid increase of overdose deaths that have been occurring. Yes. You know, with the mix of fentanyl and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I wonder if you could maybe speak to what you're seeing in your perspective, because you were working in a methadone clinic back in the 80s. Yes. So you've kind of watched the evolution of that particular treatment, but I know there's probably going to be an opiate user or somebody in recovery, maybe kind of considering like a medication to help them out. Um, man, you're an expert, so. Well, there's your perspective. there is not one size fits all. 